Welcome back to the Act 2 Podcast, a podcast for the real-life working screenwriter. I'm Tasha Hugh. And I'm Josh Hallman. And before we launch into our episode today about structure, which is oh so exciting, uh, please remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on any of our future exciting topics. Um, give us a rating, write a comment, tell us we're awesome, tell us we're way off the mark, and uh, <laughs> tell Josh that. Uh, if you'd rather DM <laughs> us questions, topic suggestions, or you just want to say hi, you can reach out to us at act2writers at gmail.com. That's all spelled out. Or on our Instagram at act2writers. You can also find me if you want, Tasha on Instagram at Story Thursday and on Twitter at Tasha 3.0. Yeah. And I'm Josh Hallman on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and Joshua Hallman on Twitter. Ah, yeah. (laughs) I feel like as a writer, you really should have been more creative there. What are you talking about? I I tried to get in early. I was like, I want my name on everything. (laughs) Maybe that's my mistake. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Uh, All right, well, before we get into structure, I actually got a question from a listener about our using visuals in a pitch episode. And I just kind of want to talk about her question briefly because I think it was a really good one. Uh, If you haven't listened to using visuals in a pitch yet, go back, take a listen. It's part three of our Pitching is Terrible series where we talk about how to best use visuals in a pitch. So this listener kind of had a two-part question, and it was... What do you do if one of the characters that you're pitching can't be represented by someone who's famous or someone who has like a known face? Um, For example, we all know there's like ageism in Hollywood. There's a lot of whitewashing in our business. (laughs) So what? (laughs) So I thought her question was actually pretty valid because she said that the hero of her story happens to be a Latina woman who's in her 60s, kind of like a grandma figure. So she was like, well, there's no kind of really big stars that could immediately, you know, sell your movie with that character. And so first of all, I would say that if you Google hard enough, you're going to most likely find a recognizable Latina actress who's in their 60s to put on your card. Just might take a little bit more searching. But second, I think there are two ways to approach this, where one way is that you can do that kind of split picture that we talked about. Now we talk about using those five by eight inch index cards, which feels just like it's the right size to use in a pitch with a conference room or if you're in an office, it's just a, kind of a bigger size. So on one of your five by eight inch cards, you can have one picture of whatever Latina actress in her 60s that you find on one side. And then on the other, you can find a photo of this grandma character that fits the mood and feel of the grandma that's in your story. Because you may not be able to find, you know, a Latina actress in her 60s who's like embodying that role, right, on on the Googles. But if you split it that way, (laughs) you'll be able to show like, hey, I have my grandma character who's actually a badass action hero, and she could be potentially played by this real life actress. So that's Mm -hmm. one way you can do it. I think another way to approach it is, and it's something that I've had to do before myself as well, um, because I often pitch very diverse characters. And let me tell you, it's practically impossible to find really big names that American producers and studio executives might recognize who are Asian or Native American. Luckily, that's starting to change very slowly, but it can be very hard. Which again, that doesn't say that there aren't actors out there who are perfect. It's just to say that they're not famous enough quite yet in the American market for them to just be immediately recognizable if you throw out a picture on the table. So Mm -hmm. if that's the case for you, just find the best photo that works for who that character is. For example, in one case, I used a Native American male model for one of my character cards to play my Native American uh, love interest because I was able to find high quality photo shoots of this guy online and he just had a very cinematic look to him. So it still feels like it fits with kind of this movie pitch. She also, the second part of her question was, what if you have a protagonist? I want, can I just chime in on something real quick? Yeah. Another way, and I know you're going to laugh at this, but I'm serious, is... To double down on an actor or actress that other people don't know who they are. But if you just say who they are with so much confidence, people will think they should know who it is. People will feel stupid if you're like, 
this is so and so. She's the biggest, you know, actress in this country. And here she is. Boom. I, I only know this because I've done it before. And if you can just believe what you're saying with whoever you put down, people will think it's fucking Brad Pitt every time. That's a fantastic answer. And I'm definitely not going to laugh at you. That was great. Yeah, absolutely oh. do that. Oh, okay. <laughs> and also, <laughs> I defer to you on things like this because you're married to a casting agent. So. Yeah, just yeah. double down on the lie. <laughs> that has oh, wait, wait, is marriage. it a lie? <laughs> or, or is this true? <laughs> oh, it's whatever you want it to be. But just say it with conviction and you're good. This All person right, is oh, the We'll put an asterisk person. next to that third yeah, one then. Okay. Fine. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The second part of her answer, which or her question rather, was something I feel like you and I can relate to, where she had a protagonist who is actually a monster. So if it's not a human in your movie, because it's a fantasy movie, what do you do when you go to put down a character card? Uh, I think the answer is actually kind of similar to the first answer where you can do that split photo thing where you put a picture of Charlize Theron on one side and a picture of your imagined monster on the other side so that you're kind of flagging visually to the exec. Yes, this is a monster who has, I don't know, like cobras for arms, but, awesome. she'll, <laughs> but she'll have the statuesque regal quality of Charlize Theron. Or alternately, just go with the picture of the monster. And then in your verbal pitch, you can, as you introduce this character, you can say something like, imagine Charlize Theron, but with cobras for arms. And then you put down your monster picture. Mm -hmm. So I hope that answers your question and is not just confusing you more. But very valid questions, also some very real answers to solve that problem. Yeah. All right, so today we are talking about movie structure boom <laughs> tv structure i would say is kind of its own beast right it's different between drama comedy animation even and we'll get into that in future episodes but today we're going to focus on kind of our first love which is how to structure your feature script specifically yeah. giving your movie that three-act structure yeah <laughs> all right first off does every movie have to have a three-act structure no it does not the movies I prefer have three-act structures. I prefer the three-act structure as well. Of course, not every movie has to, three, has to have a three-act structure. You will find amazing movies that are very engaging that do not. They're just kind of mood pieces sometimes, or they're just trying to do something else. The movies that yeah. Josh and I like to write, which do tend to be more studio-style movies or maybe a bit more mainstream They'll, they'll tend to have a three-act structure. And we'll kind of talk about why three-act structure is important. But one thing that flagged to me that movies should have a three-act structure, because I definitely came into this when I was just out of college, like, fuck three-act structure, fuck structure entirely. I'm going to do yeah. what I want. It's just about my vision. And every story is going to be different. You can't hold me down. <laughs> and then I watched Jane Eyre, which was directed by Kerry Fukunaga, written by Moira, Moira Buffini, who's a playwright. And there was something about that movie that, and I watched it so many times that I started to flag all of the moments that are completely the same turning points that are in like Avengers. Mm -hmm. It's completely wrapped around a very stereotypical three-act structure, but it feels completely original and it feels so organic and free-flowing that you don't automatically notice when the low point is coming up, when the break into two is coming up, it just happens and you're feeling it along the way. And that's when I was like, oh, <laughs> you can hide your three act structure so that it doesn't feel that way. But wrapping your movie around this skeleton is a very, I think, productive <laughs> way of writing your movie and also helps you automatically create a very kind of moving journey and a journey that we can all follow. So if you haven't seen that movie, go see it, time it. You'll see exactly where there's your setup, inciting incident, et cetera, et cetera. It's almost by the books, but it doesn't feel that way. So that gave me hope that I could still do whatever I wanted, but use this three-act structure as a skeleton to help guide me. Well, yeah, because there's movies, like you said, like mood pieces where it's just a character dealing with something and it just feels like one long 
act. Like it does, you can't really put your finger on what it is. And I'm sure if you are, obviously if you're an independent filmmaker, if you're funding something on your own, you can go ahead and do that. If you are a specific auteur that already has like this huge fan base, go for it. But if you're not, you're probably falling into the three act structure if you're looking to get something made or have a producer attached or whatever. Yeah. And I don't think you should think of it as handcuffs. Why do you think a three act structure is important, Joshua? I think it's important because it kind of gives that arc of a character that is very necessary. You have to go on this ride with a character. Things have to happen to your character. And you flag that. You kind of subconsciously know. You're like, okay, nothing's happening. Nothing ha is happening. Boom, something's happening. And you need that. Otherwise, for, or I need it at least. I just get fucking bored if I'm just watching, you know, Marty McFly walk around Hill Valley without <laughs> running into his parents. Yeah, I totally agree. I think also our brains just kind of an understand stories in a specific way. Yeah. And you're right. Like if a movie lacks structure, you can tell. It feels like it's meandering. The characters aren't moving or progressing any kind of story or arc in any real way. And I think I think about, you know, whenever you tell someone a story just kind of anecdotally, you're pretty much always going to start with a beginning, a middle, and an end. Otherwise, the person just kind of blinks at you like, what the fuck did I just listen to? And why did you waste yeah. my time? And I, in particular, tend to be that kind of storyteller. I'm really bad at telling verbal stories. I, like, kind of miss what the <laughs> turning points of the story are. And there's not always, like, a really great ending. <laughs> so, what are you talking about? I feel like I've heard your stories. They're good I, stories. I can write. I can't talk. It's not a skill of mine. <laughs> okay. So, yes, I think the answer is... Your story is really at a serious risk of meandering if you don't pay attention to three-act structure, which inherently is about progressing your story and your characters. Yeah. Do you have to do it? Absolutely not. Should you know it? Definitely. I think, as we've all said before, you will be expected in your pitches to know where these different signposts are in your movie. You will almost literally need to say, we're at the midpoint here, and then we break into act three, just so that the people who are going to invest money in your movie are able to wrap their mind around where they are in your story. So knowing what structure is, even if you kind of blow it up in the actual writing process, is really important. Totally. And we talked about this with pitches. Like whenever uh, you know I'm pitching, or I think you do the same thing with films, it's like, okay, this is, uh, and now we're into our second act. And then this, 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 and this takes us to our midpoint. This, 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 this is our low point, you know? And it's, it's just the map that uh, you kind of need to explain where you are. Yeah, it's the map. That's a great way of putting it. All right. So personally, when you start a script, how do you start to structure it? Oh, man. I, st I sometimes start all over the place. Um, I there's there's times where it's like oh it's always kind of like how something begins oh this is the character this is where i want them to begin these are some of the things that might happen this is where i want the character to go so a lot of times it's sort of a bookend for me at least okay it starts here it ends here and then it's just kind of filling in the blanks and trying to figure out you know the million other questions that kind of come in between that but this kind of goes directly to structure where I'm like, I need a beginning and I need a change of the character at the end. Is that how you do it? Yeah, I think so. I was actually just having this conversation yesterday where whenever I start a new project, I completely forget how to start it. Oh, I like, yeah. open a new document and I'm like, wait a second, how do you start writing a movie? <laughs> what yeah. The, uh, every time. But I think what I end up doing is is very similar to what you're saying, where I start super basic. So I, I start with the pieces that I know. And every story is going to be different. Sometimes I'll only know the ending of a movie. Sometimes I'll only know the inciting incident. Sometimes I'll know a couple things. But whatever those are, I will kind of plug those in. And then I'll know where I'm missing and what I need to do work on in terms of brainstorming to figure out what comes next. So I think it's important to kind of know this map that we're going to start talking about in this episode of what are the overall movements of my movie so that you know what to be writing towards. Like I think of Pablo Picasso, right? He knew all of the 
rules of how to paint and then he just threw them out the window and did his own thing again i think it's important to know the basic movements of your movie and for me when i first start what i do is i write down in my word document opening image inciting incident break into act two midpoint low point break into act three climax and resolution those are like bullet points I have on my document and then I plug in what I know of those things and again sometimes it's just the opening image but then I know I need to do all the other work so that's kind of how Josh and I both start and then you just sort of plug in kind of like a bit of a puzzle from there like if I know what the low point is and I know what the break in act two is but maybe I don't know my midpoint yet then I at least know what I need to focus on with my brainstorming um, because I know what I have. And then if I get really stuck, I start going back to these kind of series of story structure options that we're going to talk about in a moment. And I try to remind myself what I need in different parts of my movie, meaning, all right, I have my inciting incident, but I don't have my midpoint. What what is the midpoint? Like, what is the what is the nature of a midpoint? What is it supposed to be doing for my character? And then from there, I can start to break down, well, how do I get my character to that midpoint then? The midpoint is always like, what happens again here? Some, something's supposed dress, to happen, though. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you, what do you feel like in story structure is kind of your favorite? And then what do you feel like is the hardest part of story structure? Uh, I think the hardest is the midpoint. Me too. My favorite is, it's usually just like the entire first act because that's the, that's like the really fun part, right? Mm -hmm. Like the writing I feel like really begins into the second act and beyond where, you know, everyone's like, oh, I have this crazy idea where this person starts listening to this song and then X, Y, and Z starts happening to him and it's like, cool, then what? <laughs> I have often gotten to around just before the midpoint and been like i'm tapping out can i hire someone to write the rest of this <laughs> i've finished the fun part can someone else do the rest yeah when you think about a midpoint what do you think of to me it's usually a point that is a huge turning point for the whole movie like it's it swaps things around every expectation you thought you had now pivots and the movie kind of becomes about something else. Yeah, I agree. Which is really hard to do. It's like flipping a movie on its head in a mm -hmm. sense, you know? And Especially if you know what the act three is. Like you said, if you have this kind of bookend where you know where your character starts and you know where they end, you kind of like just yeah. want to get there. And all these other little mini obstacles along the way are like, I don't know and I don't care. <laughs> I just want John Wick to kill yeah. everyone. <laughs> and get a new puppy at the end we should definitely do a breakdown of john wick like i wonder what the midpoint of john wick is it's been a long time since i've seen it we All should right. definitely break that down put it on the list it's on the list um i would say too don't worry if when you write all those beats out they look awfully empty <laughs> like if you just know the opening image that's okay you will get there and i think what's interesting just about storytelling in general is that you do come to different movie ideas knowing completely different things. Like on the last two projects I worked on, I knew immediately what my opener was, exactly how it should be shot, exactly what the tone was, the images I was portraying. And then I have another pilot I'm working on where the opening image has changed mm -hmm. multiple times and it kind of is not super important to me how it opens, which is a little bit weird. But I think that's interesting because it tells you that different stories come in different ways and that's totally okay. I think in early days of writing when I didn't get my structure just right and I didn't know all my beats immediately, yeah. I would kind of panic that, oh, I can't write this because I don't know every single beat of my big kind of overall turning points of my structure. And again, I think it's totally okay if you don't know that when you first start. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm going through it right now. I'm writing something with a friend and it's kind of a crazy story that we're working on. And we, we just, we were doing all character stuff. And then we just started yesterday. It was like, okay, let's start beating this out and putting things in and doing that. Like we did exactly what you said. Here's, you know, the inciting incident, the midpoint or the second act, et cetera. And it really starts bringing up gaps in your story. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually something 
that is important to do, I think. If you don't know what something is, rather than getting stuck on what your midpoint is, you can put little brackets and just be like, I know this vaguely needs to happen. I'll yeah. figure out what that is later. You actually do that a lot in different things you submit to writer's group, which is kind of where I learned that trick to just be like, <laughs> something happens here. It's vaguely looking like this, but I'll figure that out later. And it's like, oh yeah, that's it's okay to do that because oftentimes I'll just get stuck if I don't know something and I'll just stop and you know cry and moan about it and go eat like a pizza. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I, I used to not do that, but then I got comfortable with my writer's group and because I used to be a little self-conscious of it. I'm like, I, I should have all of this before I start submitting to you guys. And then at some point I was like, fuck it. They're going to help me figure this out. Something is supposed to happen here. Move forward. It's the only way you can power through things. Yeah. Which again mind. is another tick in the box of why you should have a writer's group <laughs> or someone Absolutely. else to just bounce ideas off of whose opinions you really trust. Because I think we come into it feeling like screenwriting in particular, that means, you know, feature writing, writing for movies can be so isolating because it's just you, but it doesn't have to be. Like you can get that writer's group to just bounce ideas off and have like a mini writer's room at your disposal to help you figure out what that midpoint is. You know who we should have on this podcast? Go on. One day is we should have a writer that has never had a writer's group that has never really gotten feedback from friends but someone who has sold multiple things and just lives in their own head and just the anxiety thinking about that life. I know. I don't even know how, what I would do without you guys. If you are a writer like that, let us know. We would love to talk to you. <laughs> Anyone. Who are you? Yeah, I would, I would be curious as well. That seems difficult. Yeah. All right, so we are going to just jump in and talk about three different story structures today. And these are not the end all to be all. These are just the ones that I tend to use, that I tend to look at when I'm struggling with structure. These will always kind of bring me back to what I need to be thinking about. And the first one is from Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. So Josh, if you wanna rant and rave about screenwriting books, now's the time. They're really helpful at like, I, I have, I am not in the camp where I'm like, may, you know, shitting on people for using any screenwriting books. As a matter of fact, I really enjoy the Blake Snyder screenwriting book. And I understand, like, there's times where I'm like, come on, but there's other times where things are really, really helpful. And I don't want to rant. I, I'm just saying, I think they're really helpful. And what's weird is I remember people were talking about Save the Cat at one point, like, Oh, you should really read this book. You should really read this book. And I feel like over time, it's kind of flipped where people don't like Save the Cat. Like I now I hear people talk about it in a very negative light, whereas yeah. before it was kind of very positive, I guess. Yeah. It's, I don't think the author, I don't think Blake Snyder meant to upset anyone. I just think he was kind of... It's like us. Like he probably would have had a podcast talking about this and like people are like, <laughs> what the fuck? I think so too. I... I did a little digging on Blake Snyder because I was curious because right. I am in the camp of making fun of Save the Cat and I have read it and I actually do enjoy it. There are parts that really piss <laughs> me off. Why are you making fun of it? Because there are parts that piss me off where there's an authority to the voice where it is kind of a book that's telling you seemingly you have to do it this way. And I hate that. You and I both hate that. Yeah. I, I want to understand structure and I want to know how it works, but I want the freedom to move around it as I need to. And this book, the tone of it didn't seem to allow for that. It's telling you this is how it is. And I think the reason why it's gotten such a bad rap in our industry is because writers often come to it feeling that way. Like I've read, I've read Save the Cat by Blake Snyder. I know now how to write a movie. Oh, and that's I just see. not the case. I think you should think of screenwriting books as sort of a helpful tool in your tool chest, one of the many that you have, because oftentimes, and Blake Snyder definitely does this, he articulates something in a way that makes you understand structure or movie writing in a new and different way. And that can do nothing but help you. But it being the only thing you're referring to, and now you think you can write a movie, that's where I think the negative connotations start to come in with Save the Cat. 
All right, that's fair. I actually really, I mean, now I now I want to really defend Save the Cat. I, I, <laughs> I feel... You may want to do that even more after I tell you about him because he seemed like a great guy. So Blake Snyder wrote Blank Check from 1994 mm -hmm. and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot with Sylvester Stallone in 1992. Your boy. My boy! <laughs> <laughs> So Stop or My Mom Will Shoot was a spec that he wrote and sold for $500,000 in this massive bidding war. And we're laughing because both movies I actually thoroughly enjoyed. <laughs> I definitely yeah. remember those from the 90s. Of course. And according to Wikipedia, he then went on to sell 12 more specs. That's fantastic record, right? And he was dubbed actually, quote unquote, one of Hollywood's most successful spec screenwriters. So he's not nobody. This is someone who knows what he's talking about in terms of being able to sell specs. That being said, Blank Check and Stop or My Mom Will Shoot are the only movies he ever wrote that actually got made. So that's something we talk a lot about in our industry is the selling of a script versus a script that will actually get made. And we can talk more about that in another episode because there is a difference, I think. You and I, Josh, will talk about this where we'll see a spec sell and it has a fantastic concept we'll read it and it's a complete mess yeah. and we realize that it was bought by a studio because that concept is just so fantastic but it's so messy it'll never get made it'll it's just so much work it'll take so much money and so many different rewrites to make that movie make sense that it's just not going to happen so blake snyder fantastic spec seller got two movies made way more movies than i've ever gotten made now blake snyder passes away in 2009 so I definitely don't want to shit on this guy's memory. He, in fact, the WGA held kind of a special kind of ceremony to celebrate his life once he passed. So he was actually considered a really great model um, of success in our business and was a very highly coveted consultant for a lot of studios. Mm -hmm. So he wrote Save the Cat and that was actually, that term was coined by him. And today it remains this phrase that we use to explain a moment in your movie where the protagonist does something that makes them worth rooting for. For example, like if you open the movie on this drunk who's mean to all of his neighbors, but then he saves a cat from getting hit by a car, you're suddenly like, oh, well, maybe it's not so bad after all. I'm willing to go along <laughs> on this ride. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I guess, interestingly, Blake Snyder specifically called out Laura Croft, Tomb Raider, Cradle of Life in 2003 as being a problem movie that did not fit proper story structure because he believed it was too focused on making Laura Croft cool and not on making her likable. So if he were live today, we would have him on this podcast to talk about Tomb Raider. <laughs> yes, definitely. All right. But, you know, I, I swear to you, there's times where I've talked to Dave before. Friend of the like, podcast, Dave Levinson. Of, yeah, Dave Levinson. <laughs> I'm like, dude, my inciting incident is on page 12. My act two begins on page 30, and my midpoint is at page 55. Like, it's the save the cat structure that I didn't even intentionally do. And I almost wonder how much this book is embedded in my brain because of how easy it is to retain. Because I started to read, uh, my, my first book was A Hero's Journey. Mm -hmm. But it's not as broken down by page numbers as Save the Cat. But anyway. No, not at all. It's more I just sweeping Snyder. ideas. Yeah. And I think what's interesting about Blake Snyder coming out and talking about Lara Croft's Tomb Raider being too focused on making her cool and not likable and him really talking about the save the cat idea is that he's yeah. clearly focused on making characters likable which as you know is not always what you need in your movie it's maybe you want your character to be unlikable and that's the point but the fact that he wants to make characters likable and that's his focus i think is something to take with you when you do read save the cat because that means of course he would focus more on story structure because by following story structure you're naturally sending your character on a journey that will make them grow so your your structure automatically kind of creates this inherent journey where you want to watch this character figure out a problem yeah. so that's where blake snyder is coming from that being said i'm actually just going to walk through blake snyder's beat sheet of what he thinks your your movie should look like 
Great. So bear with me. Um, I Yeah, I, I know exactly what the beat sheet looks like. <laughs> so first is your opening image, a visual that represents the struggle and the tone of your story, a snapshot of the main character's problem before their adventure begins. That to me is always one of the most fun parts, I think, about starting to write your movie is thinking about that powerful first image that's going to set your movie in motion back to the future it's that fantastic yeah. one shot opener in the lab number two is your setup so expand on the before snapshot present the main character's world as it is and what is missing in their life it's set up that's the, that's the next section after your opening image, is setting up the problem of the main character and the status quo of their world. Third, theme stated. This can happen during the setup. What your story is about, the message, the truth, and usually it is spoken to the main character or in the main character's presence. But at this point in your movie, they don't understand the truth not until they have some kind of personal experience and context to support it. Wow, theme, Tasha, theme. Blake Snyder and theme, love it. Yeah, yeah. And that's important because he's obviously saying your character is presented with something and they won't understand that something until the movie happens to them. And yep. I think that's very important to structure and progressing your movie. Fourth thing, catalyst. The moment where life as it is changes. It's a telegram. It's the act of catching your loved one cheating. It's allowing a monster on board the ship or meeting the true love of your life. The before world that you've set up is no more. Change is underway. That's your catalyst. His fifth thing is interesting and I think unique to him, where he calls it the debate. He says, change is scary and for a moment, or a brief number of moments, the main character doubts the journey they must take. Can I face this challenge? Do I have what it takes? Should I go at all? It is the last chance for the hero to chicken out. So it's kind of, I guess, the refusal of the call that you get from Hero's Journey, the Joseph Campbell I think Campbell that's exactly book. what it is. But he calls it the debate, which I think helps me kind of wrap my mind around it in a different way. Yeah. Number six is the break into act two. And the way he phrases it is choosing act two. So the main character makes a choice and therefore the journey begins. So we leave your setup world, we leave the, the theme and we enter the upside down, the opposite world that is act two. I think that's a really interesting way of thinking about it as the upside down of your act one. Mm -hmm. Number seven is the B story. So this is when there's a discussion about the theme. Usually this discussion is between the main character and the love interest. So again, he's assuming you have a love interest and that this, that's the story you're telling. So just FYI there. But the B story, he says, is usually called quote unquote, the love story. Yeah. Next is one of my favorite parts of writing, the promise of the premise. This is the fun part of the story. This is when Indiana Jones tries to beat the Nazis to the Lost Ark. When the detective finds the most clues and dodges the most bullets. This is when the main character explores their new world and the audience is entertained by the premise they have been promised. So this is basically what the movie trailer tends to be, is yeah. the promise of the premise. And that is towards the top of your act two. And now comes the midpoint. And dependent on the story, he says, this moment is when everything is either really great for your character or really awful. So the main character either gets everything they think they want, which is great, or they get what they think they want, but it's not actually what they need. So I often, as we talked about, get stuck at the midpoint. And I will often come back to Blake Snyder's explanation of what the midpoint is to help just jog my mind of things that could potentially happen to my character to get to the midpoint. And I think mm -hmm. that's a really great way of thinking about it. So after the midpoint, he says the bad guys close in. So this is when doubt, jealousy, fear, foes, both physical and emotional, regroup to defeat the main character's goal. And the main character's great or awful situation from the midpoint suddenly disintegrates. 
So again, it's all about turning points. You've set something up in the midpoint. Shortly after that, you're going to completely turn that around. Now, something that Lake Snyder does, which confuses me a little bit, and I don't particularly like, is that he has kind of two beats for the low point, which maybe you can explain it to me, Josh. But after bad guys close in, he says all is lost is the next phase of your movie. He says it's the opposite moment from the midpoint. It's the moment that the main character realizes they've lost everything that they've gained or everything they now have has no meaning to them. So the initial goal now looks even more impossible than it did before. And here, something or someone maybe dies. It can be physical or emotional, but the death of something makes way for something new to be born. Again, that's like so specific. And this is why I hate structure books and screenwriting yeah. books is because if you literally just followed Blake Snyder's list, you'd be writing such a paint by number story that I think would have no heart. But if you come to it, like Josh or I are talking about where you have this idea already. And when you get stuck, these beats kind of help you illuminate the path for your character, but you already have that story already. I think that's where this stuff comes in handy. So that's what he calls all is lost. And the next thing he has is called dark night of the soul where the main character hits bottom. They wallow in hopelessness. The kind of why hast thou forsaken me Lord moment. They are mourning the loss of what has died, whether it's a dream, it's their goal, it's an actual mentor character like Obi-Wan, but you must fall completely before you can pick yourself up and try again, which leads him to his break into three. So to me, all is lost and dark night of the soul are the same thing, but he's just breaking it out into two. Yeah, I agree. I kind of feel the same way. But hey, if that helps you understand your story, go for it. Yeah. <laughs> So the break into act three, again, he calls it choosing your act three, where thanks to a fresh idea or some kind of new inspiration or some kind of last minute thematic advice from your B story that's been going on, the main character now chooses to try again. So they failed in their low point and now they're going to choose something new. Finally, you get to your finale where this time around the main character incorporates the theme into their fight for the goal because they have experience from their A story movie that you've just put them through. They have this experience and some context where they're able to just tackle their act three problem. And the final image is the opposite of the opening image, which I love this idea. The final image is the opposite of your opening image, proving visually that a change has occurred within your character. Now, again, if you don't have a movie where your character changes, that's okay. You don't have to do the structure. And I think that's where people start pushing back against structure books. But this can be, I think, very helpful as well. Yeah. All right. So a second structure outline that I will sometimes turn to, I actually have no idea where I got this from and I do apologize if you are the one who created it and I stole it from you I'm sorry please let me know I will give you credit but wow. I love this one because it makes you think a little bit differently about the different sections of your movie that I don't normally think of or I don't think in these terms rather where it's called mini movies so you start to think of each section of your movie as miniature movies now what that means to me is that each section of your movie has to have intent, right? Because if you break up your movie into mini movies, you know that each of those little miniature movies needs to have its own beginning and middle and end, which I think is a great way to avoid meandering. But here is the m version, a story structure that is called the mini movie, where your mini movie one in your first act is your hero's status quo. So that's their ordinary life and it ends with the inciting incident or the call to adventure. Your next mini movie, mini movie two, is your hero's denial of the call. They're gradually locked in to the conflict brought on by the call to adventure. Mini movie three is our hero's first attempts to solve his problem. The first things that pretty much anyone would do to try and solve their problem 
appealing to outside authority or, you know, asking your parents, whatever it might be, all of these avenues end and shut the door to our hero by the end of movie three. So again, like each section has its own three act structure within it, which gets very meta. Halfway through your movie is mini movie four, where your hero spawns a more grandiose, more extreme plan, and he starts to prepare for it. He gathers what materials or allies he may need in order to put this plan into action, only for the middle of that part of your movie, for it to go horribly wrong, usually due to some kind of vital information that the hero lacked about maybe the forces of the antagonist or something about the world that they just didn't care to know. So that's middle of your movie. Mini movie five, your character having created his plan to solve his problem without changing who he is, the hero is now confronted by his need to actually change. His eyes are open to his own weaknesses and he's driven by the antagonist to change or to die. And then he retreats to lick his wounds by the end. Mini movie six, our hero spawns a new plan, but now he's ready to change. He puts his plan into action and is very nearly destroyed by it. And then he has a revelation. So that to me is your break into three, whatever mini movie six is. Mini movie seven is this revelation allows our hero to see victory and he rejoins the battle with a new fervor, finally turning the tables on his antagonist and arrives at apparent victory. But then the tables turn one more time and your movie ends with your mini movie eight where the hero puts down the antagonist's last attempt to defeat him. He wraps up his story in any of the subplots and moves into the new world that he has created. This is an example of why I hate screenwriting books. <laughs> yeah, that sounded really complicated. It's overly complicated, but also so specific that again, if I just wrote a movie based on this alone, I would just have a paint by number movie. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> Didn't but, you start this out by saying you, you like this? As I was going to say, the way <laughs> that I use this as a tool is again, if I have my inciting incident, my break into act two, and I know what my low point is, but I'm still missing that break into three. I might come in here and say, all right, well, mini movie six. Okay, that's about where I am in my movie. And this guy is saying our hero spawns a new plan and now he's ready to change and he puts, puts that plan into action until he has a new revelation. Okay, like that's an interesting way of thinking about my break into act three. Let me see if that fits within my story and that will just allow me to start brainstorming. But to write your movie according to this structure is a whole different animal that I personally yeah. do not advocate. Like my brain couldn't handle all of the movie talk. Like I feel like I'm trying to write one movie and if I think of many movies in one movie, I'm just, I'm like, I don't even want to write. I'm done. You know what? Actually, look, re-looking at it, I wonder if this wouldn't be better to think about if you've already written your script. Like, you've written your vomit draft, and you're going back, and you are trying to start adding more intent to every scene. And if you think about your scenes as, like, mini movies within themselves, then I think you do start to build a stronger scene with more complexity. But again, just starting from thinking of mini movies feels very difficult and overly complicated yeah personal preference yeah i like um I, I listened to spielberg a while back talk about how he shoots certain scenes and whatnot and how everything has a beginning a middle and an end mm -hmm. and i've always really liked that idea and i think about it when i'm writing scenes and but anyway moving on so far if we're if we're gonna pick a winner out of all of these so far i'm going with blake snyder yeah so far he, he's winning this race yeah but I think what you said is really important about what Steven Spielberg thinks about and how important thinking about act one, act two, act three, even in within act one, for instance, just making sure act one has its own arc is I think very important. And a lot of successful directors think that way where they'll come in and they'll be like, well, Josh, what's the intent of this scene? And you're like, oh, you realize, oh, right. Like this scene is actually 
just showing my character get from point A to point B. I need to add intent in here. I need to add complexity to this scene. I think when you're asking those questions, it becomes important. But is that your starting point? Not typically. <sighs> All right, moving on to the last one. Fuck, moving on, please. <laughs> <laughs> this one is from Script Lab, scriptlab.com. This is actually my favorite one, and it is the one I probably use the most. It just oh. fits with the way I, my brain thinks, I think. Um, and I will actually write out, I will like copy paste this into a new document if I'm struggling and just work directly off of it. So this is about sequences. So Script Lab divides your act one, act two, act three into different sequences. In act one, you're gonna have two sequences in act two, you have four sequences, and then act three is two sequences. So of course your act two is going to be much bigger, literally twice as big. So sequence number one is your status quo and inciting incident. Now this is the section that establishes the central character, her life, the status quo, and the world of your story. This usually ends with the inciting incident. But this plot point can sometimes appear earlier in the first few minutes of your film. Meaning, you could have a whole setup and your inciting incident comes later, but think of your sequence one, the first half of your act one, as being establishing your status quo mm -hmm. and then ending with your inciting incident. So inciting incident comes around page what? Okay, I'm liking this so far, by the way. Inciting incident, <laughs> Like anywhere between like 12 to 15 if we're going off of screenwriting books? Yeah, that's usually when it happens. So halfway through your act one, boom, you're ending with your inciting incident. You're launching into sequence two, which is called the predicament and the lock-in. So sequence two sets up the predicament of the movie that will be central to the story. First intimations of the possible obstacles come in here. The main tension will be established at the end of this act. And the sequence ends when the main character is locked into the predicament and propelled into a new direction to obtain their goal, which I think is just a fantastic way to articulate what the break into act two is. Your character is locked into a predicament and they are propelled into a new direction. Yeah. So that is the end of your act one. Act two starts with sequence three, which is the first obstacle and raising the stakes. The first obstacle to the central character is now faced and the beginning of the elimination of the alternatives begins. Often, this is a time where exposition left over from act one is now brought out. Since our character is locked into this situation and can't simply walk away, the stakes are now higher. There is a lot more to lose. So again, I just love the way that that's articulated. And I think the fact that this sequence three at the top of act one is called not just first obstacle, which tells you I got to throw a fucking obstacle at my character, but it's also raising the stakes. And I think that's something that's important. We've talked about in this podcast before that you often get the note of it feels like there are no stakes in this movie. <laughs> but if you're constantly reminding yourself, I have to raise the stakes of my character and the world, that can be very helpful. All right, sequence number four. It's called the first culmination or the midpoint. So at this point in your movie, there is a, now a higher obstacle. The principle of rising action is brought in and it builds to this first culmination, which usually parallels the resolution of your movie. So if the story is a tragedy and your hero dies, then this midpoint should be a low point for your character because the end is a low point. If, however, your hero wins at the end of the film, then sequence four, your midpoint, should end with them winning in some way. Oh, wow. So it's a mirror of each other, you just Yeah. Said. And because the midpoint is always my hardest sticking point, I often come to sequence four of the script lab list and think, all right, if, how does my story end? Because I usually know that. And if my story ends in this way, if my hero dies at the end, then this midpoint should kind of mirror that low point. It's just a different way of thinking about what your midpoint should be. Again, it's a jumping off point for brainstorming. If by the end of the brainstorm session, I'm like, 
fuck you, script lab. That's actually not what I want my midpoint to be. You don't know what you're talking about. Totally fine. But it's a way to start brainstorming when I'm stuck. Yeah. Sequence five. I really like this one because it helps to sum up, I think, a really common dead space in your movie, which is right after your midpoint. Getting to your midpoint is hard enough. Getting out of your midpoint into the break into act three is extra hard. So here is sequence five, subplot and rising action. The second act sag can set in at this point if we don't have a strong subplot to take the ball for a while. So we still want rising action here, but we're not quite ready yet for the main culmination of our movie. I just watched a movie that did a great job with this, by the way. Which movie? Attack the Block. Which movie? Which Attack the Block, <laughs> which you still haven't seen. And I'm not just saying this because, uh, because Paul hates it and you haven't seen it. I'm saying it because, well, we don't have to get too far into Attack the Block. But like the primary thrust of that movie is that aliens are attacking a block. But there is this other story about these cops. And then there's another story about people chasing them. And that does mm. a really great job of the subplot. Kind of like the handoff in a, in, a, in a beautifully handled way. I think that's a fantastic example. Something that feels very in the background, maybe earlier in the movie, suddenly kind yeah. of comes to the fore and seems to have a bigger point than you thought that it did. Which Definitely. I think is great. Sequence six is the last sequence of your act two, which is what he calls the main culmination or the end of act two. So it's the buildup to the main culmination of your movie. It's back to the main storyline with a vengeance, the highest obstacle, the last alternative, the highest or lowest moment, and the end of our main tension comes at this point. But we start to get the first inklings of there being a new tension that will carry us now through the third act. Which I think is interesting. I think it's interesting to think of your break into act three being new tension. It's being kind of a surprising twist that you didn't expect. That can be very helpful for me when I'm starting to think about how I'm propelling myself into act three. Mm -hmm. So now we're in act three. We have two sequences left. Sequence seven. It's called new tension and twist. So this is the top of your act three. The full yet simple brief establishment of the third act tension with its requisite exposition. This is where that comes in. Simpler, faster in nearly all ways with rapid short scenes and no real elaborate setups. The twist can then end this sequence or come at the start of the eighth sequence. Again, this is so specific. If you don't want rapid short scenes in this section, mm -hmm. don't do it. <laughs> but I think it's still just a great way to think about how your top of your third act should really feel. And the idea of keeping in mind that there should be a new twist, there should be new information and new tension, I think is a great way to open your act three. Something to think about. Mm -hmm. Finally, we end with sequence eight, which is your resolution. So hellbent for the resolution, clarity becomes important. If they turn left, all is well. If they go right, the world as we know it ends. Not that we don't have complex emotions or ideas about what it all amounts to, but at this point, we crave clarity in the movie. Will he get the girl? Will she defuse the bomb, turn in his murderous brother, and escape from the seeking boat surrounded by sharks? It is the culmination of your whole movie. So that is the story structure I prefer and that I look to the most. I'm going to be honest. That was, that was, I like that structure. Me too. That's good. I like that. And, and I know you've said this a couple times, but it just has to be said that if these don't work for you, you don't have to use these as structure. This is not the end all be all by any stretch. This is just, you know, it's something. <laughs> I mean, and I think the way you say that is so accurate. It's like sometimes when you're writing, you just need some kind of guidance. Like just, yeah. I need some you, way to articulate to help my brain get back on track. Yeah, I've honestly found that kind of like doing the Blake Snyder of it all or uh, doing something with structure, even if it is the wrong like moment like what's my low point you start really thinking about it sometimes it gives you the correct answer 
even if it's not the correct answer at first. It just mm -hmm. helps your brain think in different ways. And I, I understand the reaction to fight it. I think we've both fought the having structure and from books and shit like that. But, you know, they're successful for a reason. Yeah. Yeah, I hate rules. But again, it is a tool to put in your tool chest. I think, you know, something yeah. we talked about in our Pixar episode was when you get stuck, just make sure you keep writing. And even if it's just a bullet point list of bad ideas, at least you're getting through and you're pushing forward. And I think this is a great example of how to do that is rather than get stuck and put something down for a week and lose your momentum, look at one of these story structures, look at where you are in your movie, compare it to what they say should happen and see if that just sparks ideas. And I can't emphasize this enough that do not take this as scripture, right? Do not take these story structure examples as what your movie has to be. It's simply a helpful guide. Yeah. And one more thing about this is, I, I mean, at least I think it's all about character, right? And so if you just kind of track your character, if you say, fuck the structure, forget it. But you know that a character has to be going through something. Otherwise, we would see movies of people just sleeping. Like you, you have to, like, if you kind of just clock where your character is and you kind of know what you want to have happen to your character, structure just kind of organically forms. I, I, I always think character first, character first, what can, like, where does the character fall into this structure? These aren't just plot points. These are character moments. I think that's absolutely important to remember. And something we'll talk about in our character episode as well, because this is one of the most important lessons I think in screenwriting is that your movie should be propelled by character. Not that I don't love me a good plot driven movie, but I love me a character driven movie way more. And those movies tend to do much better. But yes, I think I once got trapped in thinking about plot points and got trapped in structure. And I remember I was just, very frustrated calling my manager. I didn't understand my story. Why am I having such a problem figuring out what, where everything is going? And she said that it's because I keep thinking about plot first and not character and that I needed to just take a step back and say, all right, if I know my inciting instant, great. That's great. Now just go into it from the point of view of your character and what would your character do? And not only that, but what are the obstacles I need to throw in front of my character? to propel them to the next thing that I want to get them to rather than what is the plot thing I need? It's like, what is the thing that would really challenge my character the most, the thing that they yeah. fear the most, which again is a Pixar thing that we talked about, right? We think our example was in finding Nemo where Marlin is so terrified of going out into the ocean and what do the Pixar writers make him do go out into the ocean. So yeah. it's, it's thinking about, character first but allowing these plot point structures to kind of guide that direction i feel like i'm a broken record but it's just so important to me no. that no one follows these structures to I, know, the I, feel like, <laughs> I feel like we're both really worried that people would say well you know like you said to do structure a certain way i feel like we're just like here's how to do structure but don't listen to any of that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah. kind of a weird episode. It's like, here's the thing all about structure, but ignore us at the end. Yeah, but also follow structure. <laughs> <laughs> I want to say one last thing. Yeah. I have a new notebook. It's called the Anecdote Notebook, and it's awesome. It allows you to track your goals, your schedule, your to-do list. I highly recommend it. <laughs> new sponsor of the podcast anecdote <laughs> new unofficial sponsor yeah the they podcast. don't know what's happening <laughs> we are now sponsored by casamigos and anecdote notebooks all right i'm gonna take us out with a quote of the day that feels very appropriate there's this inherent screenplay structure that everyone seems to be stuck on this three-act thing doesn't really interest me to me, it's kind of like saying, well, when you do a painting, you always need to have sky here, the person here, and the ground here. Well, you don't. Charlie Kaufman. It's hard to argue with that. It's Charlie Kaufman. 
which Charlie Kaufman is a great example of not having structure. <laughs> Damn. Please remember to rate and subscribe. Follow us at Act2Writers for more awesome writing stuff. You can follow me, Tasha, at Story Thursday on Instagram or on Twitter at Tasha3.0. And you can follow me, Josh, on Instagram at Josh Hallman or Twitter at Joshua Hallman. And as always, the Act2 podcast is a production of Act2, a network and support group for the everyday working screenwriter. This episode was edited by Paul Lundquist, music by 414 Beg, which you can find on Spotify. Mm -hmm.